Okay, hello everybody. It's nice to be back in this room. This is an important room. This was the first, first room I ever met any of you in, which is nice. Um, today's, today's lecture is, 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 a, is a slightly complicated one, um, as opposed to the other ones. <laughs> Today, today's is a, is, a little, is a little bit complicated and 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 perhaps a little bit a little bit controversial. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the author of the handout, Edward Said was not exactly a great lover of the Jewish people or the state of Israel. So, what are you doing quoting from him? Would be you know the obvious question: pull out those tomatoes and start throwing them. But I'd actually like to I'd actually like to to speak about about one aspect of Said's work. Um, I want to talk about. Freud, which is the primary subject of today's, of today's talk. I want to talk about Moses. I want to talk about what it means to be Jewish. It's quite a lot for one, for one hour. Um, and I actually want to connect it a little bit. This was not by design, but just because just that's what people like me have to know how to do. It's part of the, part of the job spec. Um, but I'd like to connect it a little bit to today. Right? Today's Shivasar Betamuz. Um, I'd like to start with that. Shivasar Bitamuz is one of those days in the in the Jewish in the Jewish annual cycle where we commemorate the destruction of the temple. Right? The destruction of the temple is um, it, there's a cycle of fast days that, that commemorate different historical events that took place preceding and in the act of the destruction of the temple. And there are um, all sorts of other reasons for being miserable on this day that get piled onto every day of destruction. So there's 20 bad things that happen in any one of them, which reflect a certain cyclical philosophy of time, one event returning in different forms, generation after generation after generation. But the destruction of the temple is an interesting event, um, certainly within the context of our generation, because it marks ultimately um, the beginning of Jewish diaspora. I say ultimately because it took several hundred years for the, for the majority of Jews to make their way out of the land of Israel. Um, those Jews living in the land of Israel at the time of the destruction, there was of course already a strong Babylonian Jewish community that existed before the temple was destroyed. But the, it's, a, it's a gradual process of several hundred years. But, but the destruction of the temple is no doubt the, the, the critical and the, and the definitive event. And the destruction of the temple perhaps symbolizes, as we talk here, um, two different ways of describing collective Jewish identity. One in which we can talk about a strong, firm, nationalized identity focused on a particular piece of land, focused on, a on, the, on the conversation in a particular language, where our sense of strength is connected very much to our sense of consolidation. Right. We, we talked about gender the other day, so I would, I would, in a very rough way, talk about a sort of a, a masculinity of identity that's associated with, with this notion. An alternative is, is the structure of Jewish life as Jewish people knew it for thousands of years, which is the life in, in diaspora. A life of being spread out amongst the nations. Absorbing cultures, contributing to cultures, adapting, surviving, swallowing things up and spitting things out, um, perhaps yielding in the wonderfully ambivalent sense of that word. When you yield, you give up on something, but you also 
contain something, absorb it, and allow it to exist within you. And this is really an interesting, an interesting theme to talk about across Jewish history, because on the one hand, we have a clear voice in Jewish history that talks about the consolidated, focused identity of the Jewish people in their land with a temple, speaking Hebrew, perpetuating a close-knit Jewish identity. We have a strong voice in Jewish culture that articulates that as the positive model. That's the way we won't die out. That's the way we will remain strong. That's the way the Jewish people will be able to self-perpetuate, right? Which is a Jewish obsession, right? To self-perpetuate and to make sure that our grandchildren are Jewish. And, and there, there's a lot to be said for that voice. But what's interesting is that there is another voice which rather than looking at the diasporic experience as one that is so destructive and, and, and spread out and weak and, and threatening, we, we now live in a generation in the last, not, I'm not talking about the last five years, I'm talking about the last 150, 200 years. But we are living in the broad sense of the term in a generation which values the diasporic existence of the Jewish people. Right? Um, certainly the Zionists got it wrong when they thought in 1948 that after the establishment of the State of Israel, all the Jews from all around the world would pack up their bags and, 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 and settle in the land of Israel. Many, many people chose not to do that. And they not only chose not to do it, they've been successful not only in perpetuating themselves numerically, although that is an issue, but also in perpetuating themselves culturally in deepening their Judaism and being creative with it and developing new forms of Judaism. So there seems to be there seems to be a, a tension between between what is what is a, a consolidated firm Jewish identity and a yielding diasporic spread out Jewish identity, and that's a tension that I don't know how to resolve. I don't know how to resolve it. It's a real it's a real question. It's it's one of the big questions of our generation of our time. It's not just a sociological question, though. It's a very deep cultural question. It's a very deep cultural question. How do we understand the Jewish tradition? Do we need to think of it in pure terms? Do we need to think of it in pure ethnic terms in order for it to be authentic? Are we threatened by the idea that the Jewish tradition has absorbed ideas from the outside? Right? Does that liberate us? Does it threaten us? How do, how do we respond to these kinds of issues when we talk about the identity of the Jewish people? What are the, what are the thumbprints? What are the characteristics of the identity of the Jewish people? And how can we negotiate these two models as ways of talking about that? Now, this is a question that, um, that I don't have, as I said, clear answers to. I do believe that when we are firmly rooted on one side of this dilemma and intolerant of the other, whichever way it goes, firmly rooted on this side of the dilemma and intolerant of the other. Either way, I think we're worse off. And I think there's a lot to be said for working through this dilemma, working through this dilemma. Now, one of the people who I think really, really was claimed by this dilemma and had a problem with it was Freud. Freud, who was clearly a, 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 he was clearly identified as a Jew and was in many ways active and involved in the Jewish community, was active and involved in the Zionist movement, was also withdrawn from the Jewish community, hid himself away from it and opposed the Zionist movement. He did both. And he seems to have struggled with this, with this dilemma of his identity in all, in all sorts of different ways. And at the end of his life, at the end of his life, Freud wrote this extraordinary book. 
It's his last work, right? It's his last work. And it's called Moses and Monotheism. And it was an outrageous book for him to publish. It was an outrageous, outrageous book. The Jews of his time responded to this book very, very angrily. They responded to it very, very angrily. This version of the book, like every other published version of the book, is unedited. It's a little bit of a mess. He reiterates himself over and over and over and over again. He writes an essay and then he writes another essay and it's version one and it's version two. And he rehearses some of the arguments from version one and version two and adds a little bit and then he plays around a little bit more in version three. Basically, he never finished this book. We've got all the versions of it and it seems to come to a close. I mean, it seems to come to an end. But it looks like one of those, it looks like one of those things that if he'd had another two or three years, he would have sat down and streamlined it and cleaned it up and we'd have had, we'd have had a more coherent, we'd, had a, we'd have been able to offer a more coherent reading experience. Um, so basically, if you ever want to read this book, just pick up one of the versions. Um, it's, they're divided up here into parts, livrut, part one, part two, part three. Read any one of them and you can, and you can get the gist of what Freud is trying to say. So Freud's book is so outrageous because he argues two theses in this book. Basically, there are two arguments in this book. I think the second one is brilliant. I use it all the time. I think the first one is totally flawed, but really, really, really interesting. Okay, so I'm going to look at the first one for most of the time. I'll tell you a little bit about the second one as well, because I told you it was brilliant. So you want to hear something that's brilliant. But the first one, which is flawed, is the one that I want to focus on. And it's really, really interesting. It's interesting not as a, not as a commentary on the Bible. It's totally flawed, in my view, as a commentary on the Bible. But it's fascinating as a reflection on Freud and on questions of Jewish identity. Okay, what is Freud's first thesis in this book? He argues as follows. I'm reading from the beginning of the book. It's not in your handout. To deny a people the man who it praises as the greatest of its sons is not a deed to be undertaken lightheartedly, especially by one belonging to that people. So Freud's coming forward. I'm Jewish. No consideration, however, will move me to set aside truth in favor of supposed national interests. Moreover, the elucidation of the mere facts of the problem may expect you to deepen our insight into the situation with which they are concerned. The man, Moses, the liberator of his people who gave them their religion and their lives, belonged to an age so remote that the preliminary question arises whether he was a historical person or a legendary figure. If he lived, his time was the 13th or 14th century BC. I'm jumping. Although the decision lacks final historical certainty, the great majority of, of historians have expressed the opinion that Moses did live and that, the, and that the exodus from Egypt led by him did in fact take place. It has been maintained with good reason that the later history of Israel could not be understood if this were not admitted. Science today has become much more cautious and deals much more leniently with tradition than it did in the early days of historical investigation. Having presented the idea that Moses was indeed a historical figure and that the story of the Exodus can be understood in scientific terms and a historical argument may be made for it, Freud moves on to make the extraordinary claim that Moses was in fact an Egyptian. Not a Jew, but an Egyptian. 
So we go back to the first sentence, to deny a people the man who it praises the greatest of its sons. Whoa. He's telling us that Moses is not Jewish, but an Egyptian. What first attracts our interest in the person of Moses is his name, which is written Moshe in Hebrew. One may well ask, as is well known, the story in Exodus chapter 2 already answers this question where this name comes from. But he goes on to talk about the name Moses and the connection between it and the common royal suffix mesis, ramesis, for example, that was part of that was part of the Egyptian, was part of the Egyptian lexicon. Right? So he argues that Moses is of an Egyptian name and that Moses is of Egyptian origin. He actually goes on to make what I think is a fascinating argument and compares the story of Moses' birth and his early childhood with all kinds of foundation myths of great leaders. And he looks at Romulus and Remus and so on and so forth. And he says there's a certain pattern to these stories which has a psychological or a psychoanalytical logic to it that, he's going, that he explains. What's the pattern? We're familiar with it perhaps more than anywhere else from the story of Oedipus Rex. The pattern is that there is a great king and the king has a son and the son is a threat to the king. And there's an oracle and the oracle tells him to send away the son and to send him off to a new destiny. And he's sent off, whether it's to the woods where he's raised by, by wolves or to the houses of the poor or to the houses of slaves where this, where this prince who doesn't know his true identity lives and prospers and grows and becomes a leader and ultimately of course the fate of his destiny unfolds and this leader comes along and ends up killing the king and only discovering after he's killed the king that it, the king was actually his father as in the case with Oedipus it gets a little bit more complicated with the mother but this is a structure that we're very very familiar with in foundation myths again we have a royal a child born to the royal. The child is perceived as a threat. The father thinks he'll get rid of the threat by sending the child off. The child rises to his destiny unawares, comes back and kills the father and the oracle, the prophecy of the oracle in a fakakta way is fulfilled, right? Let's look at the story of Moses. The story of Moses seems to be the exact opposite. It seems to be an inverted version of the original structure. Moses is the guy who grows up and is born, sorry, into a family of slaves. His life is threatened as the son of the slaves. So his mother sends him off. And by the way, it's classic that you send the child off down the river, right? That's classic. The child is set off, sent off down the river. Right? Did anyone see the prince of Egypt? Did anyone see the Prince of Egypt, the way he goes down the river and the crocodiles are snapping at him? Have you seen that? It's the most amazingly moving, moving scene. A DreamWorks movie, The Prince of Egypt. I, I never got to see the whole thing the first time round because my wife was so, was so moved by it that we had to go to the hospital to give birth to our third child. It was, it was really, I, I, was, I didn't get to see the whole movie. I was really annoyed. Anyway, but the, the, um, the story is the same story in reverse. Right? The child is sent off and then taken on by the princess. And he ends up not growing up in the house of the slaves, but growing up in the house of the prince. And as he grows up in the house of the prince, he eventually discovers his true identity and goes away, leaves the family, of, leaves the royal home, returns to his own people and becomes their leader. Freud looks at this 
as a scientific skeptic. Freud's basic assumption is that the story, the way it is usually told, is the way that it needs to be told. And for reasons that those of you who are familiar with a little bit of the, of the infrastructure of Freud's psychoanalysis will be able to understand, Freud thinks that this is a law of nature, that the story is supposed to be told the way it's told, which means, and this is his argument in Moses and Monotheism, that the biblical narrative as we know it has been tampered with. So somebody has taken the story and turned it around and twisted it around so as it will fit with something that feels much more comfortable to the national identity of the Jewish people, while the original story that is concealed behind this tampering and which Freud can reconstruct for us is the story of an, of an Egyptian prince, a son of Ramesses, who is sent off by his father because he's perceived as a threat, the reason why he is perceived as a threat, according to Freud, is because there's a religious struggle going on inside Egypt in the time of, of Moses' father's rule. And the priests of Achniton, who believe in a single God, are threatening the cult of the royal family in Egypt. And Moses is enamored with this idea of believing in Achniton, the single God. So Moses is perceived as a threat, according to Freud. He's sent off. And as he grows up with the slaves, he discovers that he can become a leader. He discovers that he can become a leader by preaching to them the belief in the single Egyptian god of Akhnaton. In other words, Moses is responsible for bringing monotheism, Moses and monotheism, from Egyptian culture and bequeathing it to the slaves to the slaves in Egypt, and he becomes their leader. And he doesn't end up killing his father, but he ends up usurping from him his population of slaves, and he leads them out into the desert. This is the historical reconstruction of the story of Moses that Freud wants us to accept and that Freud wants us to believe. His assumption is that the text has been tampered with. And there are moments in the text where you get a little bit of a sense of the complexity of Moses' identity. Was Moses an Egyptian? Is that entirely impossible? Is there none of that left in the biblical text? I don't think he was an Egyptian, personally, but I do think there's something of it left. And you know where it turns up really striking? In the story where Moses walks out and sees the Egyptian slave driver beating beating the Jewish slaves. So let me, let me read that to you, just a little bit, and we'll see what you think. And it was in those days, and Moses grew up a little bit, and he went out to his brothers. It's a very strange phrase that he goes out to his brothers at this stage of the game. As far as Moses knows, he's an Egyptian prince. So he's clearly, the text is giving us a sense of Moses the Jew and the Egyptian being a little bit confused. Vayar besivlotam, and he sees their suffering. Vayar ish mitzri, and he saw an Egyptian man, make ish ivri, hitting a Hebrew man, mi echav, who was one of his brothers. Vayifen ko and he looked left and right. 
right, the way you're supposed to before you cross the road, right? You tell the kids, Tifnu Kovacho, look left and right. Vayar ki en ish. And he saw that there was nobody there. Vihine shnei anashim ivrim nitzim. And there were two Hebrews nearby who were struggling and fighting. Why are you hitting your friends? I missed the sentence. Sorry, he, hit the, he, he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the, in the sand. And then he goes out on the next day and he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. And he says to one of them, why are you hitting your brother? And the first one says to him, who are you to tell me what to do? And Moses goes, oh, oh my God. What happened? Yesterday has got out. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand this story. I'll tell you why I don't understand this story. First of all, I mean, there are two things here that I can't make sense of. First of all, if he killed the, the, the Egyptian and there was nobody there who saw it happen, right, then how do other people know? And if there was somebody there who saw it happen, presumably the, the other Hebrew who was there, then why does it say Vayar ki en ish? that he saw there was no one there. Why couldn't he have got the Egyptian? You know, the Hebrew goes away, calls over the Egyptian, gets, gets the Hebrew out of the way, kills him. It says, ish, there's no one there. So the text seems to, be, seems to be a little confused here. And the other thing that is most striking to me is, how come these Hebrew slaves, when Moses says to them, don't hit each other, how come they speak back? How come they talk back when they say to him, who the hell do you think you are? He's got a really good answer. I'm a prince of Egypt. Right? What do you mean, who the hell do I, think, do I think I am? I'm a prince of Egypt. What right do you have to speak to me? There seems to be a complicated identity confusion in this piece of the text. Now, we could give a psychological, psychoanalytical reading of this that might suggest something to the, something to the tune of, Moses is looking around and he sees there's nobody there. Vayalki and Ish, because there is nobody there. All he sees around him is an Egyptian and a Jew. And who is, who is the Egyptian and who is the Jew? They're both Moses. He's struggling with his own identity. And he sees the Egyptians struggling with the Jew. And at this critical moment, he decides to change his identity and he kills the Egyptian, who's the Egyptian who Moses kills? The Egyptian within. And when he kills the Egyptian within, he emerges, he emerges as a Jew and is therefore vulnerable to the criticism of Jewish slaves. Maybe there's something like that, an undercurrent in the text going that way. I don't think that's the primary reading of the text, but I think there might be an undercurrent in the text that allows us to see the character of Moses is a complex, confused identity story. He's not quite sure he's Egyptian, he's Jewish, and he's struggling with these two identities within himself. And maybe that is an example and a trace of what Freud is playing with when he suggests to us that Moses is more deeply connected to his Egyptian identity than we have ever imagined. Freud goes on to argue that the children of Israel have a very hard time with this Egyptian. They don't really know how to buy this fellow. And of course, they don't understand what he's teaching. They don't recognize this religion that he's teaching them. It doesn't really make any sense to them. So as far as Freud is concerned, 
If you look at the narrative of the Bible, it's all about the children of Israel disobeying the teachings of Moses, right? We all know that. We, I spoke about that on Shabbat, right? The children of Israel dis disobeying the teachings of Moses is the predominant theme of the Bible, right? Nobody listens to Moses, right? Nobody listens to him. All the way through the Bible, nobody listens. Everybody worships idols, right? People don't listen to Moses. They don't like Moses. He's not very popular. Freud goes so far as to make the outrageous claim, and he got attacked for this. <sighs> And I can find no evidence for this. And I've scoured, I've scoured, scoured the Bible. I've scoured Freud. I've looked in his footnotes. I've looked at the places where he refers, that he refers to. I can't see it. I've tried. Maybe somebody here can help me out. I can't see it. But he claims there is evidence in the Bible that what ultimately happened was that the children of Israel got so annoyed with Moses that they slaughtered him. They killed him. Anyone familiar with Susan Handelman's book, Slayers of Moses, um, which is a fascinating sort of postmodern critique of, of, of the biblical text, will recognize Freud's theme in her title, Slayers of Moses. Whether you look at it metaphorically because nobody ever listened to him, or whether you look at it literally in the way that Freud does, where he tries to make the historical argument that the children of Israel killed Moses and the authors of the Bible covered up Moses' Egyptian identity and they covered up and they covered up his, his, um, the story of his untimely death. One way or another, maybe you could argue something about the fact that nobody knows where Moses was born, that there's a cover-up, uh, where he was buried. There's a cover-up that connects to his death. Maybe you can draw a little bit of biblical textual evidence to support Freud's hypothesis. But I don't think it's a very strong idea. I find it very strange. What is a strong idea, and what is a striking idea, is Freud's second claim that I'm not going to say very much about because it's not my main subject, but I promise because I think it's brilliant. Freud claims that after the children of Israel killed Moses, they went into denial. And what happens to people who go into denial? They repress stuff. And when they repress stuff, they eventually, it crackles under the surface until it breaks out again in the form of a neurosis, right? And what, 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 Freud argues is that the voice of Moses crying from the grave is repressed by the Jewish people all the way through the books of, of, of the narrative books of the Bible, right? All the way through Joshua and Judges and Samuel and, and Kings. And that it bursts out afresh when we hear the voices of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Haggai, Malachi, Zechariah, etc., etc., they are, they are this kind of neurotic outpouring of the voice of Moses that has been repressed. Now, that idea, which I think is a brilliant insight into the Bible and gives us this, this sense of, you know, these crazy characters who just couldn't hold it down anymore and had to speak up for Moses and for his teachings. I think it's corroborated by a really, really interesting theme or a really interesting story in the Bible, which describes basically the, the beginning of the age of prophecy. And the beginning of the age of prophecy, if you look in your Bibles, appears in Kings 2, chapter 22. It's an amazing story. Kings 2, tw chapter 22, tells the story of the excavation of the temple in Jerusalem in order to refurbish it. And in the process of cleaning up the temple, what do they discover? The book of Dvarim. The book of Dvarim. So there's a sense that this book, what is the book of Dvarim? It's the, it's the apocalyptic pro prophecy of Moses himself. This book has been repressed. It's been buried underground. And when it gets rediscovered, 
what's described in the Bible is that they open this book up and they start reading it and they tear their clothes in fear. Why do they tear their clothes in fear? Because they start reading the book of Dvarim and they see the teachings of Moses and they get to the end of the book of Dvarim and what do they find at the end of the book of Dvarim? These frightening, shocking curses that are going to fall on the heads of those who do not obey the teachings of Moses and they get the shock of their lives. And even though Freud doesn't use this piece of text to support his argument, I think it does support his argument and it suggests that latter-day biblical prophecy is this explosion of a sort of post-repression mosaic loyalty. And we have these singular monotheistic voices in the Bible. There aren't many, but we have these singular monotheistic voices in the Bible that pop up at the end and start screaming out, and trying to, trying to share with the people who, who this single God in the heavens actually is. Fascinating, fascinating idea. But I'm putting that to the side. Back to the point. You can strike that from the iTunes. That was just a digression. But, but the major point, and the one that I want to discuss, is Freud's hopeless, as far as biblical scholarship is concerned, hopeless hypothesis, that you can make a historical argument that the Bible as we know it and the narrative of Moses as we know it is a cover-up for a foundation myth that had it been told the way it was originally happening or the way it was originally composed, the Jewish people would have had to have lived with the idea that the founder of their religion was an Egyptian and that the origin of their most hallowed conviction that God is one was actually an Egyptian idea. Now that is really, really striking. It's a bombshell. It doesn't work in the Bible, but it is worth paying attention to and thinking about. So I'd like to, I'd like to tease out, I'd like to tease out this idea a little bit to tease out this idea a little bit. Freud didn't put it in these terms because Freud was a, was, a, was a sort of a fundamentalist scientist. So he had to make solid historical arguments. And by the way, he had to do such terribly hard work. Half of this book is him trying to prove that Akhnaton lived at the same time as Moses. And he has to move all the historical stuff around so as they all fit together. And he uses skimpy evidence to do it. And he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's not an archaeologist. He doesn't know this stuff. And it's, it's never been taken seriously as a piece of biblical scholarship. But what a fascinating statement on the part of a Jew that what characterizes Judaism is not something essential that has a source, that has a point of origin, but what characterizes Judaism is something eclectic, something that absorbs, processes, owns, changes, reshapes. That's a fascinating idea. That what makes us Jewish is not some fundamental common origin but precisely the opposite, something, something synthetic, something absorbing, that the Jewish ability, the Jewish capability is to make multiple ideas coexist and to make that coexistence compelling. That's a fascinating, fascinating idea. It's actually been reiterated recently by an Israeli uh, Bible scholar of the, by the name of Israel Knoll. K-N-O-H-L, who takes Freud's thesis, which Freud can't 
Freud can't do the biblical scholarship the way Knoll can. He just didn't have the, the skills. But he, he, he reconstructs it in a different way. He doesn't look so much at the, at the Egyptian culture as at the Moabite culture, and Knoll really understands the material. But he makes a very, very similar claim. And he argues that ultimately what characterizes the Jewish tribes, and there's never a single Jewish tribe, is their ability to consolidate a shared identity, which by its very nature is eclectic. Right? So he's got this idea of the Jewish genetic structure. He calls it the code, right? the Jewish code. I think he brought it out shortly after the Da Vinci Code. So he wanted to, he, wanted to, you know, he was hoping it would help with marketing. But, but the book, which is called Me'ain Banu, Where Did We Come From? is a biblical analysis that tries to make the claim that, that indeed what is Jewish is, is this kind of multi-tribal eclecticism. And he refers to Freud as a biblical scholar. He does, he does, I think, much better work than Freud. But I'm interested now not so much in the historicity of Freud's claim. I'm interested in the meaning of Freud's claim as we think about it in the context of a book that is being written during the... Why does he not finish this book in one sitting? Because he starts writing it in the mid-30s. And as... As the threat of the, of the Third Reich reaches him more directly, he has to up and leave. And he only finishes this book in London. So Freud is experiencing the biggest physical threat to the history of the Jewish people. He's struggling with his diasporic identity. He's struggling with the Zionist movement. He's struggling with the Zionist idea. He's struggling with the questions of what it takes to consolidate a Jewish identity that can survive this upheaval. And he's asking himself the question, what are the origins of Jewishness? And what are the things that we need to know to preserve in order to evolve, perpetuate, survive, grow? And Freud says something really, really interesting. When he says that Moses is an Egyptian, He's not just saying that Moses, the origin of Moshe Rabbeinu, isn't Jewish. He's saying something else, which perhaps, perhaps seems a little, a little twisted or, or unconvincing for me to say. But writing in the period that he is writing, when Moses is not a Jew, but an Egyptian that reverberates with the message that Judaism is not a European or a Western phenomenon, but one that belongs to the, to the Middle East. Not only the Middle East, but the non-Jewish Middle East. Not only the non-Jewish Middle East, but the colonialized Middle East. And Freud seems to be playing within the context of his own time. If we can just leave aside the obvious claim that the Jewish people in the time of the Bible didn't live in Europe either. If we can leave aside the historical context of the biblical narrative and try and just focus ourselves on this genius of a madman trying to figure out who he is, trying to figure out what it means to be Jewish, Freud is struggling very deeply with the question of which side of the coin are we on? The European side 
Is Judaism a European phenomenon? Does it make sense within the discourse of the Judeo-Christian world? Is it part of the European discourse? Or is this phenomenon one which belongs to the world of the colonies, the world that's kicking back, the world that's, that's complaining about Europe, that's assaulting Europe, that's feeling violated by Europe? Yes? Time frame of you know, you know, Nazism and the Holocaust. It's interesting that he's that you're saying Freud is trying to prove that actually the ancient Hebrews were not, you know, that a non-Jew created them. You know, or so gave the Greek monotheism okay, to them. So to them, so came from a non-Jewish. Whereas Christianity, that is going to survive, you know, more survive and everything like that. The Jews are getting killed off for being Jewish, but in fact they were done, you know, they're heritage comes from an Egyptian. Oh, so what you're saying is it might have been a sort of survival mechanism right, against the Nazis. The, the Nazis Jews, preferred Egyptians to Jews. Right, no, no, no. But then on the other side, so we really have our basis in a non-Jewish person, whereas Christianity, that you're saying is the better religion, has their basis in a Jew. Did I say Christianity? <laughs> no, 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 I say No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> What I'll give you, what I'll give you, what I will validate from your question. Um, here, I'm reiterating. You're here. What I'll va validate from your question is that I accept the idea, okay, that there is this dimension to Freud in the context of the Holocaust that he might be arguing, well, we're not that Jewish anyway, right? That's an interesting thought. That's an interesting idea. But I think, and, and I'll give you that. I think, I think there is something interesting there. But I think that the question that, that is really a question for these Jews, much, much more powerful than the question of are we Jewish and is our Judaism pure? I think the question is are we European? Because, because the fundamental sense of belonging in European culture is the one that's really being undermined here. It's not the legitimacy of their Judaism that's being undermined. Right? The, 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 the Holocaust is a threat to Jewish life, but it's not, it doesn't really, it, it's not a widespread phenomenon that Jews tried to convert out of Nazi persecution. That wasn't an option because the whole thing was being described in genetic terms. So I think, that, I think it makes much more sense. I think it's much more compelling to talk about Freud struggling with the question of, is Europe really a home for the Jewish people? And that's not just Freud's question. We have to recognize that that is a question that the Jewish people have been asking since the 1890s. Is Europe a home for the Jewish people? Is the Western world, I think we can expand it and extend it even to include America. Is the Western world a home for the Jewish people? And if it is not, what does it mean to articulate the otherness of Jews living in Europe? And there is an otherness. What does it mean to articulate that otherness in non-European terms? Now, what I'd like to look at with you, what I'd like to, to, to introduce into this discussion is, is a remarkable, remarkable lecture given by Edward Said. And he calls it Freud and the non-European. Freud and the non-European. Now, we need to know a little bit about who Edward Said was. Edward Said, who died a number of years ago, was the foremost Palestinian intellectual in the world. Uh, he was professor of comparative literature at Columbia University in New York. He was also politically very, very outspoken. Let's make it very clear. He was politically outspoken. He was rabidly anti-Zionist. Let's 
not confuse ourselves about this. Just because I'm, I'm going to say nice things about him, I haven't forgotten. He was rabidly anti-Zionist. Yes, he was arrested for throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. And yes, he did all sorts of, did all sorts of things that, um, that I don't approve of and don't like, as do lots of Israeli soldiers as well. And he was essentially the, f the intellectual father of the movement that we tend to refer to as post-colonialism. Right? Post-colonialism is basically the idea, his book, which is a masterpiece, is called Orientalism. I don't know if anyone here has ever read it. Israelis and Jews tend to read it looking for the stuff to hate in it. The truth is when you read it, it's actually, it's actually a very reasonable um, and very sober book. Said wrote some terrible things at other times in his career, but Orientalism is not an example. Orientalism does for non-European culture what feminism does for non-masculine culture. Orientalism generates the equivalent of gender when talking about national identity in the same way as Simone de Beauvoir generates gender as a category when she's talking about the distinctions between men and women. What he does is he imagines a world in which the, in, in which the, um, the notion of Europe as the center and the notion of other cultures as being peripheral to it, right? he imagines that world turned upside down. He tries to describe a perspective on the Oriental, which is rooted in the experience of the Oriental and not in the experience of the colonial. It's very, very difficult to do. And just like the language of gender in feminism generated the whole discourse of political correctness, right? Which sometimes goes to extremes, right? There's an, the London borough of Brent doesn't have manholes, it has personnel shafts and these kinds of things. So, you know, you have to be very, you have to be, you have to know where to draw the line. But he's the one who notices the use of words like savage and barbarian, not as, I mean, we're, we're now very sensitive to such words, but it wasn't long ago that people who lived outside of Europe were understood as barbarians and savages or as primitives. This kind, and these are just the most obvious surface examples. The use of black to describe a skin color that just isn't, um, and so on and so on and so forth. So Said is one of those thinkers who heightens our sensitivity to the perspective on the world that is not rooted in the Eurocentricity of the European intellectual elite. And for that, I think he should be commended. There's some very, very important work there. The question of whether or not Israel and the state of Israel and the Zionist entity is a colonial entity, that's a different question. That's a different question. It's an important one. I think it's a complex one that we should struggle with rather than deciding upon. It's a complex one. But Said, I think, is responsible for heightening our sensitivities to some of those complexities. And you can imagine how he jumps on Freud. Because what he suggests, and if you look at the handout that I gave you, we're going to look at some of the passages from Said. I gave you more, I gave you more than I'm going to read from, um, because um, it's an invitation to sit down and read this. It's a speech. And it's, you know, it's one sitting to sit down and read it. It's not, it's not hours and hours. I did take bits out so as you get highlights. Um, but, but there is, I think, a lot to be said for reading this book. So let's go to the beginning. 
There are two ways in which I shall be using the term non-European in this lecture, one that applies to Freud's own time, the other to the period after his death in 1939. Both are deeply relevant to a reading of his work today. One, of course, is a simple designation of the world beyond Freud's own as a Viennese Jewish scientist, philosopher, and intellectual who lived and worked his entire life in either Austria or England. No one who has read and been influenced by Freud's extraordinary work has failed to be impressed by the remarkable range of his erudition, especially in literature and the history of culture. But by the same token, one is very struck by the fact that beyond the confines of Europe, Freud's awareness of other cultures, with perhaps one exception, that of Egypt, is inflected and, and indeed shaped by his education in the Judeo-Christian tradition, particularly the humanistic and scientific assumptions that give it its peculiarly Western stamp. Okay, so Freud's picture of the other is a Eurocentric picture of the other. Page 17. The second and far more politically charged meaning of the non-European that I like to draw attention to is the culture that emerged historically in the post-World War II period. That is, after the fall of the classical empires and the emergence of many newly liberated peoples and states in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Obviously, I cannot go into the many new configurations of power, people, and politics that have resulted, but I would like to stress one in particular that seems to me to give a rather fascinating perspective and in, indeed enhances the radicality of Freud's work on human identity. What I have in mind is how in the post-World War, post-war world, that constellation of words and valences that surrounds Europe and the West acquired a much more fraught an even rebarbative meaning from observers outside Europe and the West. Let's just stop there. Did anybody, does anybody here watch the West Wing? You know, watch the West Wing? I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the West Wing. There's an episode in the West Wing in which this bunch of, of, of people, I don't, I don't remember what organization they're supposed to represent, come to President Bartlett, right? Do you remember President Bartlett? Wasn't he great? Wasn't he great? Loved him. Um, come to President Bartlett and suggest changing the curriculum in schools for geography. And instead of having the, the picture of the world for, with the north on top and the south on the bottom, right? they suggest turning it upside down. And why in the world not? The thing's a ball, right? When you spread it out cartographically, the way we are all familiar with, so we have the west and we have the east and we have the north and we have the south, right? Why not do it the other way around? Now, when you look at this for the first time, I remember seeing it on screen and going, oh, wow, it's just a visual image and you go, oh, who said that's the wrong way around? How do we decide that's the wrong way around? How do we decide center and periphery? Why is England in the middle? I mean, that's obvious. <laughs> It's because Scotland's just on top of England. <laughs> Simple. But it's not insignificant that England's in the middle and then we have the Near East because it's near east of England and the Far East, right? And isn't that interesting? Now, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. But what it is not is obvious to people who don't live in the West. 
We assume it's obvious to them too, but it isn't. I remember once um, when I was 20 years old, I went to um, give a series of, I was actually a young madrich and I was doing all sorts of games and stuff that I was doing with, with Jewish kids in Australia. And before I went, they prepared us and they gave us a seminar and they equipped us for the experience of going to Australia and what we were going to do and all sorts of stupid games that we had to learn how to play with Australian children and stuff like that. I got one piece of advice that I will never, ever, ever forget. It was absolutely brilliant. This fellow stood up and he said, you know, the most important thing to realize when you're working with Australian children is that for you, Israel is here and for them, it's there. That was the way he did it. I mean, something like that. Right. And when he when he told us that, right, that's stuck in my head forever. Right. That for them, Israel is over there. People in different places in the world think of the shape of the world and the way in which the world is organized differently. Now, when Europeans engaged in a world war, what was really going on was that European countries were fighting each other and using the rest of the world as their battlefield. Right. So the war in North Africa was still a war between Germans and, and British and Americans, right? The world wars were European wars. And there were plenty of other countries that were trodden under in this, in this process of European nationalism fighting out its power, its strength, and its ethics. But the result of this experience, and we all know it, we know it in, this, in the history of, of, of Mahatma Gandhi, right? We know it in the, in the changes that take place in Africa and in Algeria a little bit later, right? And of course, one way or another, it's a little bit complicated. I admit it. I know it. I don't want to deny it or confuse it. But in Israel, we know the same things as well. It's the same era. It's the same time. After the war, something fundamental about the claim of Europe to define the structures of modern living, something fundamental about that claim started to disintegrate. And the voice of the Western anthropologist who could comfortably describe the cultures of the Orientals, right? the Mongols. Do you remember all these names for different countries? The Siamese. Do you remember these words? The Rhodesians. Do you remember all of these? It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. Who'd ever heard of Mumbai? It was Bombay, because who knows how to pronounce Mumbai correctly, right? So the cultures of these other places in the world started to, started to surface and started to claim their place on an equal footing with European culture in an international discourse. And we see it now in the UN. We see the vocality and the vocal, the, the noise that, that this huge population in the world complains of all sorts of stuff. And what right do they have? Right? We still struggle. We still have a problem with the democratization of world society. We only democratize democratic societies. We don't democratize our interactions with non-democratic societies. It's problematic. It's very complicated. And what Saeed is interested in is in grabbing a figure like Freud, who is deeply Eurocentric. His thinking is Eurocentric. His psychoanalysis is Eurocentric. It seems to be fairly deeply rooted in the notion of original sin, 
right? And neurosis seems to be connected deeply to the idea of original sin. And his categorization of the different components of the subconscious seem to be very European categorizations. And his notions of normative behavior seem to be very European. His notions of sexuality seem to be very European. So Freud is clearly a European, but he's living in a period in which he is struggling with the possibility of his own Jewishness and his own Jewish identity as an other within Europe, in a Europe that is rejecting him, not only as belonging to a non-European environment, to a non-European culture, but also as originating in a non-European environment and a non-European culture. Have a look at page 50. For an Israeli, second line, archaeology substantiates Jewish identity in Israel and rationalizes a particular kind of colonial settlement. For a Palestinian, archaeology must be challenged so that those facts and the practices that gave them a kind of scientific pedigree are open to the existence of other histories and a multiplicity of voices. Let me return finally to Freud. I'm jumping and his interest in the non-European as it bears on his attempt to reconstruct the primitive history of Jewish identity. What I find so compelling about it is that Freud seems to have made a special effort never to discount or play down the fact that Moses was non-European, especially since, in the terms of his argument, modern Judaism and the Jews were mainly to be thought of as European, or at least belonging to Europe rather than Asia or Africa. We must once again ask why. Certainly Freud had no thought of Europe as the malevolent colonizing power described a few decades later by Fanon. Those of you who haven't read Fanon, read Fanon. Phenomenal description of, of, of life in Algeria under French colonial rule. Compulsory, compulsory reading. Don't, don't read it on a full stomach. It's, it's, it's gross, but it's phenomenal. And except for his prophetic comment about angering the Palestinian Arabs by giving undue importance to Jewish monuments, he had no idea at all of what would happen after 1948 when Palestinians gradually came to see that the people who arrived from abroad to take and settle on their land seemed just like the French who came to Algeria. Europe Europeans who had superior title to the land over the non-European natives. Now, I'm not sure, let me read a little bit more. Neither except very briefly did Freud pause over how strong and often violent the reaction of decidedly non-European Arabs might have been to the forcible embodiment of Jewish identity in the nationalist fulfillment of Judaism by the Zionist movement. He admired Herzl, but I think it's correct to say that most of the time he hesitated, indeed he equivocated, so far as Zionism itself was concerned. From an instrumental point of view, Moses had to be a non-European so that in murdering him, the Israelites would have something to repress and also something to recall, elevate and spiritualize during the course of their great adventure in the rebuilding of Israel overseas. That is a fascinating insight. Remember, Freud argues that the people killed Israel. He killed Moses. But in killing Moses, they weren't really killing one of their own. And in repressing not only the killing of Moses, 
But the non-Jewishness of Moses, as Said reads it, Freud articulates the image of a Jew carrying an angst and a guilt. That's familiar, right? Carrying guilt, that's what they say about Alzheimer's for Jewish people. All that's left is the guilt, right? That, that, that by the time the, the time the Jewish people are building their lives in different places and across history, they are never free of this repressed sense of guilt. Because ultimately, whatever they do and whatever they cause at the expense of others to take place is going to harp on this sense of conscience, this sense of guilt, this sense of not belonging, this sense of being accountable to the other, responsible to the other, accused by the other. Now, Said clearly, clearly, clearly has a point here. And he's trying, I think, to celebrate a kind of Jewish identity that we might argue is a diasporic Jewish identity, this Freudian Jewish identity. Said is trying to celebrate it in this essay on Freud. And ultimately, what he is suggesting is that this porous Jewish identity, if, I, if we go right to the end of this striking essay. We're nearly there. We're only one or two pages from the end. But ultimately what he is suggesting is that this non-European consciousness of Freud's suggests a sort of porous Jewish identity that because of its eclectic origins destines the Jewish people to want and to need to live with others. The Jewish people absorb the cultures of others, that is Jewishness in this portrayal of it. And in so doing, they must live in conjunction with others, be claimed morally and ethically by the accusations of others, work through their guilt in the face of others, look at the crumbling of their own identities when they attempt to construct them as pure and completely separate from the identities of others. Now, this is not my point of view. I'll reach my conclusion in a minute, but I want to just carry um, Said's argument to the end, from page 53, towards the bottom. Freud's meditations and insistence on the non-European from a Jewish point of view provide, I think, an admirable sketch of what it entails by way of refusing to resolve identity into some of the nationalist or religious herds in which so many people want so desperately to run. More bold is Freud's profound exemplification of the insight that even for the most definable, the most identifiable, the most stubborn communal identity, for him this was the Jewish identity, there are inherent limits that prevent it from being fully incorporated into one and only one identity. Freud's symbol of those limits was that the founder of Jewish identity was himself a non-European Egyptian. In other words, identity cannot be thought or worked through itself alone. It cannot constitute or even imagine itself without that radical originary break or flaw, which will not be repressed because Moses was Egyptian and therefore always outside the identity inside which so many have stood and suffered and later perhaps even triumphed. The strength of this thought is, I believe, that it can be articulated in and speak to other besieged identities as well. 
not through dispensing palliatives such as tolerance and compassion, but rather by attending to it as a troubling, disabling, destabilizing, secular wound, the essence of the cosmopolitan from which there can be no recovery, no state of resolved or stoic calm. That's for you, Phyllis. And no utopian reconciliation, even within itself. This is a necessary psychological experience, Freud says. But the problem is that he doesn't give any indication of how long it must be tolerated or whether, properly speaking, it has real history, history being always that which comes after and all too often either overrides or represses the flaw. I'm jumping to the last paragraph. Can it aspire to the condition of a politics of diaspora life? Can it ever become the not-so-precarious foundation in the land of Jews and Palestinians of a binational state in which Israel and Palestine are parts rather than antagonists of each other's history and underlying reality? I myself believe so. As much because Freud's unresolved sense of identity is so fruitful an example as because the condition he takes such pains to elucidate is actually more general in the non-European world than he suspected. Now, that's a fascinating conclusion. Now, Said is an advocate for the binational state. I'm not. But he is suggesting here that this quality of acknowledging the non-European and acknowledging the complexity and the, the eclectic nature of identity rather than thinking of it in in firm nationalistic terms, not only characterizes something that Freud intuited about what it is to be Jewish, but it actually characterizes the cultures of the Middle East as well, who have been in political upheaval of all sorts and taken on all kinds of identities and have, and have had to form and reform themselves, themselves in all sorts of different contexts. So in saying this, Said is actually echoing a voice that we're hearing in Israel a great deal. People like Mer Buzaglo, Yossi Yona, there are a number of them, who are articulating the claim that owning our non-European Sephardic heritage is an essential component of belonging to the Middle East, rather than using the language of European nationalism to build a wall that isolates us from the Middle East and leaves us hanging precariously at the edge of Europe. So these are, these are very difficult political questions, and I don't have solutions for them, and I actually don't want to talk about that right now. I'm not trying to talk about that right now, but I do want to say the following. I want to say that this notion of an intermingling of the nationalist, firm, consolidated identity with the eclectic, yielding, diasporic identity is not only the reality of the Jewish people in the world today, let's face it, half the Jews in the world today live in the land of Israel and half live outside the land of Israel. So I'm not prescribing something here that's pie in the sky, don't be crazy, that's not real. That is a description of the reality in which we live. It's not only a description of the reality of the Jewish people, it might be a description of an internal dilemma and an internal tension that we don't really want to resolve. And that Zionism might have made a mistake when it claimed that we needed to resolve it. Perhaps this confusion, perhaps this, this eclecticism, perhaps this ability to talk about a, 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 a consolidated focus and a non-consolidated, eclectic alternative, which is not a periphery. Perhaps that structure is one that can allow for the Jewish people to coexist in different forms and in different ways, 
with the rest of the world more successfully and perhaps even more authentically. Now, there's something to be said for the internal variety of, of Jews. Walk around Israel and you'll see every color, every face, multi-languages, every type of food. The whole world seems to be condensed into the experience of this one people. It's really striking. And I think, it's, I think there is something to be said for embracing this kind of yielding identity as a component of our national culture and as part of our way of interacting with the world. I know it's a controversial thing to say in America where Jews are struggling to hold on to their identity. I know it's a controversial thing to say in Orange County where the basic assumptions about Israel's survival and the strength of the Jewish people are rooted in the notion of our, of our consolidating ourselves, of our being closer to each other and more alike to one another. All I wanted to do is not so much to offer an alternative or a replacement for that picture, but to unsettle it, to destabilize it, and to look at the contribution, the potential contribution of a thinker like Freud, who in my view sees something here which is very deep, which is very authentic, whether it, whether, it, whether it reflects an authentic reading of the biblical narrative or not, I don't think it does. But I think there is something here that we should contemplate, that we should see seriously and think about deeply enough to leave it unresolved. Thank you very, very much. Questions? Go ahead. Throw rocks at me. I'm ready. Yes. Who? Decide between the pair of you. I'm not going to... Oh, wise, wise decision. In, when you're talking about Moses, there is nothing said, who are the people there? Which people? The, the slaves. Who are the slaves? They seem to be the Israelites. But if the way Moses, he has no connection to the Israelites. If he was a... a, a if you read it the way Freud does, then Moses was sent to grow up amongst the Israelites. He was, he was sent away. He takes the biblical narrative. I don't think this works as a reading of the Bible. If that's what you're asking, no, it doesn't work. But he takes, this as a he takes the biblical narrative and insists that the cover-up has reversed the story that would originally have had Moses, the, the Egyptian, being sent off to live with slaves. Okay, so the... The influence wouldn't be Egyptian, the influence would be the slave, if that's where he grew up. No, no, no. The argument is that Moses got the idea of monotheism and that this was the foundation for his being kicked off because he sided with the, with the, with the followers of Akhnaton. And, that was, an Egypt, and he was, that was an Egyptian cult. And he had no place in the Egyptian royal home, which is why he was sent off to the Jews, where he peddled the teachings of Akhenaton. That's Freud's argument. That's Freud's so argument. He brought the monotheism to the slaves? That's right. That's Freud's argument. That's Freud. I don't think it's a particularly brilliant reading of the Bible. But, I, but that's Freud. We were, we were talking about Freud today. Yes. Akasha. Um, Thank you. On Sunday, you talked about obligation uh, as a foundational principle of in Jewish law, Jewish yes. Law. And I know this lecture is not about Jewish law, but I want to ask you about how you would apply the principle of obligation to this topic, because it seems to me that we have, 
we have half the people, half the Jewish people living in Israel now, which was not the case when Freud wrote. There was no Israel then. So it was the, the condition that Said is projecting onto his interpretation of um, the Bible, um, where there has to be a, you know, th that it's the nature of Jews to live in the diaspora, um, could be true then. But now that we have a situation where we have a political state of Israel, don't we have an obligation to clarify this and not leave it um, um, You're asking me, Alec Isaacs, what do you think? Alec, what do you think Said is saying? Alec, what do you think the implications of Freud are for today? What are you asking? What do I think? What do you, well, how, would you, how no. would you reply to someone who says, don't we have an obligation to clarify it and not leave it unsettled? I think we have an obligation. I think in the state of Israel, one of the things that we have an obligation to do, you're not going to like this, I think, but I think one of the things that we have an obligation to do is to blur the boundaries of the state of Israel. I think we are, I think, I personally feel that, um, that if the state of Israel becomes, becomes this example of Jewish parochialism par excellence, um, then its meaning will be entirely self-serving. Um, and I'm not really interested in a Judaism that is only self-serving. I'm interested in a Judaism which is conscious of being the religion of the God that serves the God that created the world. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the overwhelming impact of the Holocaust on contemporary Jewish culture, which has created the vision, and I think it's actually a total illusion, that if we wrap ourselves up in a turtle's, in a turtle's shell, then we'll be fine. Um, I am interested in upwards and outwards. I'm interested in, 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 in sense of purpose. I'm interested in, in a Judaism in the state of Israel and a Judaism outside of the state of Israel that has a vision for the world. Um, I, think that, I think that is what gives our, our people its identity. It's the identity of Mamlechet Kohanim v'goy Kadosh. It's not the, the, uh, a, holy, a holy priesthood. It's not the identity of a self-serving survival mechanism. Um, I, I, think that, I think that that requires serious thinking about what it would mean to make that into a politics. Right? What, it, what, what the components of that would be. Um, I think that there are many things in the state of Israel that point in that direction. Israel has 13 national languages. It's a rather striking phenomenon. It's the largest collection of national languages, um, per obviously related in terms of relative to the size of the population in the world. It's striking. Um, there are so many things which are so cosmopolitan about Jewish history, right, that I think we need to know how to acknowledge. However, we must not acknowledge them at the expense of all the other things that consolidate. The language of obligation is a language of obligation to the other. And that's very, very important. It's an obligation to the other. It's an obligation to God. It's an obligation to things that go beyond ourselves, as opposed to rights, which is all about me, right? And that was, that's the point I was trying to make there. So I think that the two points are commensurate. But, but that doesn't mean that we don't talk about obligation. We don't, we don't talk about law. We don't talk about observance and obedience. Those are, those are terms that, that are part of my, of my picture as well. But there are tensions between them, and as I said, those tensions are unresolved, and I think they should remain unresolved. I think the, the very tension in and of itself is productive. 
Yes. You said that you yourself are not in favor of a binational state. Did you? Did I, I said I'm not advocating for one. Right. Yes. Could you tell me what your personal feelings are about that? Um, not really. Um, I'm not. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I'm happy to admit that I don't know the answer to that question. I think the state of Israel has to remain demographically viable as a Jewish state. Um, I think the state of Israel cannot be an exclusively Jewish state. And I don't think that it's possible for all the Jews living in the land of Israel to live under Jewish sovereignty in the long term. So I think we've got, I think we've got a lot of complex processes to go through. Um, I don't see any kind of resolution to the conflict in the Middle East that doesn't involve coexistence. Right, But how that plays out politically, who draws the lines and what the numbers are going to look like, I don't think anybody gets to plan or design. So I don't have, I don't have a take on that. I have a take on what our attitudes should be to the idea of coexistence. Um, but how, I, I don't think you can decide it, slice it up, and then force it onto the reality. That's what people have been trying to do for the last 30 years, and they haven't been very successful. So that's where I become reticent. I think we've run out of time as well. So I'm going to call it a day. And thank you all very much. <laughs>